Hello everyone and welcome to episode 5 of Strategic Dialogues, a podcast hosted by the Institute for Global Dialogue that aims to take a deep dive into pertinent issues in international relations, including geopolitical dynamics and governance, foreign policy analysis and international diplomacy. My name is Faith Maber, senior researcher at the Institute for Global Dialogue and my co-host is Ms. Sanusha Naidu, senior research fellow at the IGD. On this episode, we are very delighted to have Prof. Fizel um, Ishmael as our expert guest on this episode to talk about the WTO reform in the context of the crisis of multilateralism. Professor Faisal Ishmael is the director of the Nelson Mandela School of Public Governance at the University of Cape Town. He has served as the ambassador um, permanent representative of South Africa to the WTO in the years 2010 to 2014 and as South Africa's chief trade negotiator since 1994. And he led uh, the new South Democratic South Africa's trade negotiations with the European Union, SADC, Southern African Customs Union, and several other bilateral trading partners, including the US, India, and Brazil. He was also South Africa's special envoy on the South Africa-USA AGOA negotiations between January 2015 and June 2016. He's the author of three books and numerous articles on the WTO, and we are going to focus on his new book published this year, titled WTO Reform and the Crisis of Multilateralism, a Developing Country Perspective. Thank you, Prof. Ishmael, for joining us, and we look forward to tapping into your wealth of knowledge and experience on the subject of the WTO and the trade system. Thank you so much for having me on the program, Faith and Sanusha. It's a real pleasure to be uh, with you today. Fantastic, uh, Faisal. Good morning as well. I mean, it's been a while and, um, you know, it's always fantastic to chat with you and the insights you give us outside of just the theoretical and, and academic, but the, the more practical and the practitioner's perspective. And I just want to pick up on that point because I think that What's so important for us to contextualize uh, your experience, your your publications, and of course, where you are now at the Mandela School of Governance and with this latest book is how you came to be the chief negotiator for South Africa, your, your background in global trade issues, and more importantly, just giving us you know, your, your perspective in terms of uh, South Africa post-1994 and some of the ways in which South Africa had to get into the multilateral trading system and more broadly the multilateral system. So just, you know, that kind of, of perspective, Faisal. Thank you. Thank you, Sanusha. Um, well, you know, I was um, really not trained at all to be a trade negotiator when I was asked by Trevor Manuel, the first Minister of Trade and Industry, uh, who was appointed uh, by President Mandela in 1994 to join his office um, and begin answering letters from ministers around the world to begin negotiations for um, to build new trading relationships. Uh, however, I think I was uh, well equipped um, to engage in the cut and thrust of uh, negotiations mainly because of the experience I had built up in the 1980s in the mass democratic movement. I was uh, an activist in Pietermaritzburg and the Midlands region and um, 
was part of um, the uh, building of the United Democratic Front. I was president of the Black Student Society in Peter Maritzburg University at the time and uh, worked um, in several uh, mass uh, organizations. Um, and then, of course, in uh, <clears throat> when I left university, my first job was uh, in the trade union movement. I was uh, appointed as a, a legal advisor to the Council of Trade Unions, Council of Unions uh, in, uh, based in Peter Maritzburg. Um, and uh, I was fortunate, really, in 1990 to have um, gained a scholarship to go to uh, IDS, the Institute of Development Studies at Sussex University, where I spent two years between 1990 and uh, 92 uh, studying um, development studies, uh, economic development, uh, political economy. Uh, I did, um, I was really fortunate to have. Um, had uh, great thinkers like uh, Hans Singer, who uh, was a, a, an academic, but also had been involved in um, negotiations in the uh, Bretton Woods um, system um, in the 1940s and 50s. Uh, people like Robert Murray and Rafi Kaplinsky, a South African who was based there at the time. So mm -hmm. I got to uh, some insight. But when I returned uh, to South Africa, I worked um, at University of the Western Cape with Rob Davies, who had just returned from Mozambique and exile, and then uh, found my way uh, um, to what was then Shell House, the predecessor to uh, Lutuli House, mm -hmm. and where I got to work um, in the working group of the Transitional um, Executive Committee or the uh, Transitional Committees to um, the, the new government. Uh, on um, Southern Africa and um, the EU. So I guess I, I gained a, a little bit of insight into both um, negotiating, how to negotiate, but also uh, something about the ANC and um, its policies. Um, and uh, that was, uh, that was uh, you know, really all of the, that I had when I started mm -hmm. in 94. I mean, you know, I think the time of UDF and, and, and what you're talking about was such an exciting era. Uh, a lot of people had become quite uh, important, uh, used that time to to self-learn, which I thought was amazing uh, in terms of the first administration. And just on that, I mean, in, in terms of, of going forward and, and looking at uh, upon that reflection, um, how did this book come come about? Uh, what inspired you to to write this book? And of course, what are some of the key takeaways for you that you feel that readers should be uh, looking out for in this book? Well, I was fortunate to uh, have been asked by uh, one of the officials in UNCTAD, the UN Conference for Trade and Development in Geneva, to write a, a short uh, paper on the current reforms that are being debated in Geneva. And uh, of course, um, I, was, I welcomed the opportunity to do that because uh, uh, when I returned from Geneva in uh, 2014, I didn't look back. In fact, mm -hmm. I changed my focus to Africa and regional integration in Africa. Um, but when I was in Geneva, uh, I spent a great deal of time there. Uh, I was... Uh, sent there by Minister Alec Irwin in 2002 
and uh, for various reasons, uh, I was asked to stay uh, and uh, only returned in 2014. So I'd spent a, a total of uh, 12 years. But during that time, I, um, you know, beside leading a number of negotiations on behalf of South Africa and many developing countries, I also wrote a lot. And I, I did write uh, two books uh, on the uh, WTO and the role of developing countries. Mm-hmm. And uh, so for me, this was an opportunity to uh, draw on that uh, experience and, and knowledge that I had gained while I was there and add to that in uh, this um, discussion about the current reforms in the WTO. So that's uh, why I uh, you know, agreed to write it. Um, and I guess the main insights that I um, uh, shared in the book is really about this history of uh, developing countries in the uh, in the GATT, um, mm-hmm. and uh, you will recall that GATT started a long time ago in 1947. Yeah. I was also fortunate while I was in Geneva to have written a PhD. <laughs> uh, while I was there, I studied the history of South Africa, apartheid South Africa, in the GATT from 1947, and this deepened my knowledge about the role of developing countries in the uh, WTO. So I guess the main insight I bring is the long history of developing countries in the GATT and the um, inherent uh, asymmetries and imbalances that existed in the multilateral system since 1947. And in particular, how the developing countries were poorly treated in the uh, in in the GATT and then the WTO, which was uh, mm-hmm. you know the GATT was transformed into the WTO in 1995, and uh, the WTO continued uh, to actually uh, underline and deepen this asymmetry, uh, mm-hmm. and of course these reforms that are being proposed by the United States and other developed countries seek to further deepen the existing asymmetry of the GATT. So I think that's the main insight that I bring uh, in this book. Um, so it is, a, in a sense, a continuation of my own work uh, over the uh, 40, uh, 12 years or so that I spent in Geneva. And uh, uh, I'm adding to that and, and deepening those insights. Great stuff. Thank you so much. I think the the, the fact that you bring in not only experience and, and what you've taken um, so much time to also get into the background is important because um, we we need and our listeners also need to understand um, just how also you, you filter in and how you bring in, um, how you raise and how you frame a lot of the issues that you cover in the book. Um, I'm going to turn into the the, the essence of, of some of the, the most uh, substantive issues that you address um, in the book with regard to WTO reform. So obviously, since its inception in '95, uh, it has been the cornerstone of the the multilateral rules-based global trading system, and um, arguably now is is in a, a point where it's it's a make or break moment. So even before the the COVID nineteen pandemic, um, all three of the organization functions providing a negotiation forum to liberalize trade and establish new rules, monitoring trade policies, and Resolving disputes uh, between its 164 members has faced challenges, but the COVID-19 pandemic 
has brought into sharp relief the need for reform and the revamping of the the global multilateral rules based uh, system. So, is the, do you think that there is a capacity for WTO resilience in the context of of this crisis of multilateralism? Yes. So it's interesting. <clears throat> the COVID nineteen, of course, has been, um, you know, it has it has it has forced us to rethink uh to reevaluate uh the whole way we think about uh, life uh, on earth our relationship with nature um and our relationship with each other uh, at a national level and of course between uh, each other as countries in the global system and one of the things it has underlined is the you know, the inequality, the imbalances in the global system. So let me give you a few examples. The first thing that happened in the first month of uh, COVID-19 in March, April, was an immediate sort of almost knee-jerk reaction by developed countries to restrict their exports of essential drugs uh, that are absolutely uh, required by poor countries in the world because poor countries, especially African countries, um, depend almost totally on imports of pharmaceutical goods and medical devices from other countries. Uh, Africa depends on you know its imports uh, on on uh, other countries for its. Uh, uh, for its essential drugs up to about 94%. So the restrictions caused a panic uh, in many countries, um, including our own in South Africa, but all over the continent. Uh, countries were scrambling around to look for um, face masks, sanitizers, um, and some of the uh, you know drugs that are, are needed for the treatment of COVID-19. And... Uh, um, the the restrictions, of course, uh, that were imposed were uh, um, were unfair. They were not in the spirit of the WTO. Of course, they could be justified uh, legally in terms of some of the provisions of the WTO, which allow countries to take action in emergency situations. But of course, it is against the the spirit of multilateralism um, when there is a need for solidarity across the world. Um, given that we have a pandemic that impacts on everybody in the world, multilateral institutions should be working together, collaborating in order to uh, secure uh, medicines, particularly for the poorest countries. And this is exactly what didn't happen. And so in Africa, we um, began to rely on ourselves. And so I'm very proud of the fact that African countries acted swiftly under the leadership of the African Union and uh, the African Center for Disease Control. They managed to uh, um, help each other uh, testing to test for the virus. They also created a common procurement pool um, and took a number of actions uh, to begin to produce our own uh, capacity, to build our own capacity and there are many interesting initiatives taken around the continent uh, to do this, including South Africa, the uh, you know building of ventilators and companies uh, 
repurposing their production lines to do this uh, in several uh, several parts of the continent. Uh, so what it did teach us is that we do need uh, strong multilateral institutions that serve the purpose for which they were created, which was to build international cooperation, uh, to build resilience, uh, as you, you suggest, uh, resilience against exactly things like this, global pandemics uh, and disease, and to create stability and peace in the world. So uh, that's what uh, I think we have all gained from uh, uh, the COVID-19 experience. We have seen the inequities, you know, they have been exacerbated, but we've also at the same time reflected on the need to strengthen multilateralism, true multilateralism, which uh, is, you know, based on the principles of uh, solidarity and justice. I think you've you've raised very important. Um, you've certainly painted a, the a, what I would call the more optimistic um, scenario for WTO reform that has been f uh, brought to the fore by the COVID nineteen pandemic. Of course, there's the pessimistic uh, a scenario which focuses on the more compli complications that have for, for trade policy that COVID nineteen has highlighted. Not not um, forgetting the issue about um, the, the question of uh, vaccine uh, production and, and the, the kind of questions that will emerge around um, the intellectual property regime, um, the questions around the use of domestic subsidies to address the economic dimensions of the pandemic, and maybe if this if this will see um, a wave of WTO crisis um, as far as issues on trade defense instruments go, and also the question about uh, restructuring global value chains, I think, is also one that um, leaves a lot of room to for for exploration going forward. But I, I just want to also turn into the the more the the, the bigger uh, figure here, the one that uh, I think um, is is the the hot button issue around the U.S. Um, approach to 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 WTO and the kind of criticism that the U.S. has leveled. Um, against the the WTO, so obviously the the U.S. criticism has ranged on um, a broad range of factors that feed into the the, the functions of of the WTO, and the the most um, highlighted one has been the issue of the dispute um, resolution mechanism and how it has blocked the reappointment of several uh, appellate body members. And while while there's a a number of of uh, concerns that can be uh, pinpointed as as uh, the Trump's uh, administration's con um, concerns around um, WTO institutional and, and and structural issues, the question that I have is, um, is it is it clear exactly what the Trump administration's attacks on the appellate body are? Um, is it trying to take the WTO back to the way it was? Um, at its inception in 1995, or is the U.S. trying to even go further back to the GATT system that predated the WTO? And as a as a follow up to that, to what extent are the U.S. concerns reflective of systemic issues that are also uh, shared by other WTO members? Thank you. Well, let me uh, <clears throat> comment on um, 
the points you made about the current situation, why I think the importance of multilateralism um, has been also underlined by the current crisis is the debate that's taking place right now, today, in the in Geneva. Uh, the focus has shifted, uh, as you rightly point, to the vaccine, because the emergence of um, uh, a successful vaccine to combat COVID-19 is imminent. Uh, we don't know whether it will be two months or three months, uh, but there certainly uh, will be uh, several vaccines uh, that uh, will be available. Of course, all of these will be patented by the drug companies that uh, have uh, been working on uh, the production of these vaccines. And in each case, the vaccines um, uh, have been heavily subsidized by governments, uh, the United States, uh, um, but also other developed countries have spent uh, hundreds of millions of dollars uh, to um, uh, undertake the research that is required to uh, develop these vaccines. And the patents will provide monopoly rights to the companies um, that uh, will be uh, issuing them uh, and that will have taken ownership of them. And already um, many countries in the developed world have pre-ordered the drugs uh, from these uh, multinational companies, which means that there will be a restricted supply of the vaccine to poorer countries, including and especially countries in Africa. And the patent uh, will give these companies the power and the authority uh, to restrict the production of these uh, drugs to generic production by other companies uh, in the developing world who have the co capacity to manufacture, but they'll be prevented from doing so because of the WTO agreement, the so-called um, Trade-Related Intellectual Property Rights Agreement, the TRIPS Agreement. Now, this um, issue takes us all the way back to something I'm very familiar with, which is the uh, AIDS pandemic uh, in uh, the early 2000s. And when I got to Geneva in 2002, this was the first campaign that we launched to create more flexibilities in the TRIPS agreement so that developing countries like ourselves, which were hard hit by the AIDS pandemic, could access the uh, triple cocktail AIDS uh, drug uh, at affordable prices because the price was uh, simply um, uh, too burdensome for poor uh, people and for governments who are going to have to procure these drugs. Uh, it took us a long time, several years of hard negotiations before we were able to uh, persuade the United States to agree to create some flexibilities in the agreement. And this uh, did succeed in the end, and it did have a massive impact uh, on the reduction of prices of uh, the AIDS drugs. Right now, the same debate is taking place in Geneva uh, and South Africa, I'm proud to say, South Africa and India are jointly uh, uh, pursuing a submission uh, that they have submitted to the WTO calling for a waiver from the restrictions of the patents um, 
uh, that um, will be provided to these companies uh, under the TRIPS agreement and the protection under the TRIPS agreement so that we will be able to gain better access to the vaccine and will be able to procure them at affordable prices. So this is a big battle that is being waged right now. And right now, the United States is opposing the any idea of such a waiver. But there is large support for this campaign. Over 340 company, uh, NGOs around the world, like Oxfam and Medicine Sans Frontier, are supporting this campaign. So the WTO is important. Multilateralism is very important because it's only when we have uh, global rules and flexible rules that are balanced, that take into account the differences in capacity of developed and developing countries, and that enable uh, poorer countries to access um, medicines at affordable prices, um, that you know, we, we can say that we have a, uh, a just uh, uh, international uh, multilateral system. So we do need one, we need to fight for it, and we need to continue to campaign for it, uh, in spite of the resistance of some of the more powerful countries like the United States. I think that's... You did raise... Sorry, sorry, carry yeah, on. Please, please carry on. on. No, no, carry on. Yeah, you, the second point you raised was about the uh, disp, uh, the, the U.S. Uh, critique uh, in, in its current reforms. The, the, of course, the issue that has become most uh, um, well-known uh, is the dispute about the dispute settlement system. So the United States doesn't agree with the way in which the WTO dispute settlement system has been functioning. And it has a number of reasons that I have uh, described in the book. Many of them are very technical reasons. But the main substance of the U.S. Uh, rejection uh, of the uh, uh, DSU or criticism of the uh, DSU is that the decisions that, it, because it doesn't like the decisions that were taken by the dispute settlement uh, system and uh, what it has done is um, it has vetoed the appointment of uh, appellate body members resulting in uh, only one member being left um, at the moment and for any appellate body decision to be made uh, they need a quorum of three members so in effect the uh, dispute settlement system has been rendered dysfunctional and has been paralyzed, uh, which means that uh, there can be no real um, uh, 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 decisions taken over disputes in the, uh, in the WTO. This is only one of um, about, in the, in the book I describe uh, seven different pathways which the, uh, you know, the reforms are based on. So there are seven you know, major strategic initiatives that the United States and supported by the developed countries, most of the developed countries are pursuing in the WTO to change the structure, to change the substance and the processes of the WTO uh, in a way which would make the WTO more conducive and supportive 
of developed country interests, which of course would mean that they would um, um, change the, uh, uh, the, the, the system um, to be increasingly uh, in favor of uh, the developed countries and deepen, thereby deepen the asymmetry, the imbalance of the system against developing countries. This is the argument that I have made in the book. I, I think that's really interesting because you, you, you raise, for me, I think personally, two fundamental questions about the WTO. I mean, the current issue around the vaccine diplomacy and the question around trips and, and the pharmaceutical footprint of companies in the developed world um, and, and how the lessons we can extrapolate from the, ad, the, the, ad, the advocacy and the activism around HIV. But the other interesting point is how the WTO also, with the power of the U.S. in 1995, came to be. And as much as I don't want to be dismissive of the Trump presidency around the, the dispute settlement un, uh, uh, mechanism, at that time when they were negotiating the, uh, the, the transition from GATT to WTO, it you know, China wasn't an actor. It wasn't a player. It was just beginning to to emerge. Um, and it was only in 2001, by entering into the WTO and getting admission into the WTO, that we begin to see uh, the progressive successfulness of, of China. And to, to, to kind of expand on, on Faith's question and, and point about the appellate division and the technical questions that the Trump presidency have raised and the way they've, 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 they've kind of muted that space, um, kind of reminds me of what my professors in the UK were talking about in terms of how the administration in the, in, in the US at the time in 1995 negotiated the WTO into being. Uh, and probably you have more insight than I do, Faisal, on this, but how they wanted this WTO to be created in a manner that I think there were some tensions with France. I stand corrected on that in terms of how the name came about and so forth. And are we coming full circle to that point again? Because this time around, it is about how China's strategic interest in the WTO kind of also facilitates China's global footprint in value chains, in, in what we see as the, as the kind of uh, tensions, a redux of tensions around uh, the digital Cold War. And then linked to that um, is, is, is what is China's strategic interest as well with regard to these patents, these trips uh, agreements, because we hear about India and India seems to be uh, taking a much more kind of active role with South Africa on this, but where is China in all of this? So just, you know, try to understand that the WTO from 1995 to the WTO today, uh, if we just remove the questions of whether the Doha development round is still um, feasible or do we need to move beyond that, there are different technical elements um, that need to be thought of that could take the WTO f um, further and, and move it out of its, 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 uh, its kind of... Uh, stalemate or where it finds itself in in a in a bogged down position but just china and 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 how china is also linked to this question of patents and the vaccine diplomacy because having listening having listened to china they also are involved in with covex and and so forth so where is china in all of this and is is part of this whole point about 
about the WTO and the decisions taken against the U.S. or they don't like the decisions that have been taken, is it about the WTO per se or is it about the fact that the playing field has become much more crowded or, or the China has become much more of a crowding factor in the playing field? Yeah, so thank you very much for that question. So it's, uh, I guess it's important to situate uh, this, uh, the role of China as it uh, joins the WTO in a historical context. Because you'll remember in 1947, when the GATT was created, China had just become a communist state. And in 1950, uh, China withdrew. Of course, it was put under pressure, like many other um, countries that were linked to the Soviet Union. They withdrew uh, under pressure from the uh, uh, the United States, and of course, we you know we entered the Cold War um, with the communist states uh, being excluded from the uh, the WTO. So the WTO uh, or the GATT at the time was led by the victors of the war, the United States and the United Kingdom, who were the major players, of course, the uh, EU, as the EU was created, the, the two big players in the system were the US and the EU, until, of course, Japan. The rise of Japan in the 1980s shouldn't be forgotten because almost precisely what is happening now in the in the in the WTO has happened in the 1980s as Japan began to grow build its competitiveness you know remember first in textiles and then in electronics and uh, then in automobiles uh, there was a, a attrition a war of attrition between Japan and the United States bilaterally so there was a so-called U.S.-Japan war and a, um, a tension in the GATT, uh, which um, um, forced um, uh, Japan to change its policies, its trade policies, um, in order to become more accommodating of the uh, interests of the United States and the other developed countries. China was growing from the 1980s, mm -hmm. uh, for two decades, it was growing at 10% per annum. When it joined the, the WTO in 2001, China had already been uh, negotiating for 15 years. It negotiated its accession agreement into uh, the WTO. And by this stage, of course, China had already begun to become um, a powerful manufacturing nation. And in the literature, they already by 1980, uh, by sorry, by 2000, by the turn of the century, they were being recognized as the factory of the world. And so between 2001, when China became a member at the Doha uh, ministerial meeting, and 2008, 2009, China rose to overtake Japan, then overtake Germany then overtake the United States and become the largest exporting country in the world. This, of course, created huge tensions 
between um, China and the United States, and of course China and other developed countries, and um, led to what I would, uh, uh, I think, the, the, the collapse of the Doha round in 2008-2009, because the United States then said that, you know, developing countries like China have emerged. It wasn't only China, China, India, Brazil, uh, and several other countries, including South Africa, were called emerging countries mm-hmm. that had now become larger and uh, had to play a more responsible role and forego the uh, rights that they had uh, gained called special and differential treatment, the right to be treated differently and to be given more flexibilities in the system. This right was being challenged by the United States, especially against China. And um, as a consequence, the round collapsed in uh, 2008-2009. So we then saw a series of proposals coming out of the United States, 2009, and this is what I call the first wave of WTO reforms. All these proposals were based on a critique of China and other developing countries. The argument that these countries, you know, have now become too big mm-hmm. and uh, they should not uh, um, have the privileges, as the U.S. call them, of special and differential treatment, and they should make a bigger contribution to the system. And of course, a number of specific criticisms against China's trade policies. Those were um, significant uh, criticisms, um, but they were not as aggressive uh, as the ones that were to come in 2018 and 2019. The new proposals and the that were put forward uh, by the Trump administration in 2017. Remember, the Trump administration came in in 2017, and the first ministerial meeting it attended in Buenos Aires in December 2017, the Trump administration said, we are only going to participate in the WTO if our reform proposals are accepted. (laughs) And they made a long list, a long list of uh, demands um, amongst which was that China had to change its trade policies. China had to forego its uh, special and differential treatment rights. And of course, one of the big demands was that the dispute settlement systems practices had to change uh, before the United States would participate again uh, in the uh, in the WTO, and those proposals were then fleshed out, elaborated, and uh, supported, of course, by the European Union, and put forward uh, to the WTO General Council in 2018, 2019. So that's what I've written about in the book. <clears throat> mm-hmm. China, of course, had to defend itself, like Japan had to do in the 80s and the 90s. Of course, this time round. Uh, China is certainly no Japan. It did not succumb. It was not willing to succumb to U.S. pressure. It wants to be seen as a significant player, but it wants to defend its right to uh, be called a developing country and to have access to the flexibilities in the system, what it calls its right to development. So China says, we have a right to develop 
And if you take away, you know, the special and differential treatment, you take away our right to continue on our journey to grow our economy, to develop our economy and our society, to raise the level of income of our people. And this, they say, is what is being stymied by the U.S. aggressive stance against China's trade policies, which are really, as China sees it, they are its development policies. They are policies which are attempting to build China's economy and raise its the welfare of its people. So China, of course, at the time when we launched the campaign for flexibilities in the WTO TRIPS agreement, um, China was a strong supporter, together with Brazil and India. Uh, and of course, I was a lead negotiator for um, all the developing countries, over 100 developing countries in 2002-2003. And of course, the core group was made up of Brazil, India, and China. So China was a significant uh, partner. They were part of our alliance, and they were part of the what we call the G20 group of developing countries in the WTO, not to be confused with the G20 finance group. Mm-hmm. And that was the first major alliance of developing countries in the world because it had two of the largest economies <laughs> or by population size, India and, uh, and uh, China, and of course, uh, Brazil, large population, and then a number of other Uh, significant players um, from the developing world, including Indonesia, Nigeria, Argentina, uh, you know, became part of this developing alliance, a developing country alliance. And China has still continued to see itself as part of a developing country alliance. Of course, it has its own interests, distinctive interests as China, but Mm -hmm. it still has continued to play a supportive role of developing countries in the world. And of course, India continues to lead. They do have slightly different interests in the WTO, uh, but both are major producers of generic medicines, for example. Both are also producing their own patents, but they have large populations and poor pe- pe- large numbers of poor people. So the need for generic medicines uh, production and uh, affordable and accessible medicines for public health diseases like, um, you know, AIDS uh, and now the, uh, the pandemic, um, the, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic is important to both countries. I think that's fascinating, Faisal, because it raises so many questions about, you know, um, the... The, the way in which institutions created after a particular period in time and how they need to be updated with regard to the rules and with regard to accommodating different countries and, and, and so forth. But in terms of that going forward as well, I think we, we would also like to get a sense of how you are viewing this current race for the DG position uh, and also the, the, the way in which the U.S. has responded to the... Um, Nigerian candidate, um, and why are they responding in that way in terms of uh, supporting or not supporting her selection or blocking her selection um, in terms of um, this, this, this race? Yeah, so this is, again, an interesting uh, situation that is very peculiar to the Trump administration. 
Uh, it's true the United States uh, has uh, in every race for uh, in every campaign for a director general has played a um, uh, say uh, outsized role uh, in keeping consistent with its dominance um, in the WTO as the largest economy in the world. It has continued to play that uh, very dominate, uh, uh, dominant role um, in, in, in the WTO and um, in, the, in the multilateral system as a whole. However, uh, when there is a um, consensus that begins to emerge uh, in the WTO, so the WTO system uh, works on the basis of consensus. It's not true of other multilateral institutions uh, like the World Bank and the IMF, uh, where um, you know they have uh, a system of uh, of decision making, which is based on quotas and um, weighted voting. But in the WTO, we make decisions on the basis of the principle of consensus. Mm-hmm. It's a difficult process building consensus. But we do have well-established techniques of building consensus. And uh, this is done through the chairs or the chair of the General Council of the WTO working together with the most significant chairs of other WTO bodies. And and they are then engaged in um, continuous uh, processes of consultations with different groups in the WTO. And they eventually after a lot of hard work, they eventually do get to uh, a sense of which candidate will gain the most support um, or the most significant and overwhelming support. Which candidate has overwhelming support in the WTO? And in this case, they did follow the same procedure um, and they did arrive at a decision. So the chair of the general council, together with the other WTO chairs, arrived at a decision uh, a recommendation, of course, they have, they put it to the general counsel again. They put this uh, their finding to the general counsel for decision, and their finding was that there is overwhelming support for one candidate, which is um, the African candidate, Doctor Ngozi um, Okonjo Iwila, who we know very well. She is a former minister of finance of Nigeria. Mm-hmm. And uh, she has uh, been a senior member of the World Bank. She has uh, she's very respected internationally. She's well known, and uh, she has uh, um, a- accumulated uh, the respect and support uh, through her engagement, you know, with WTO members uh, over the last few months. Um, and uh, she has gained the most significant support, uh, overwhelming support, according to the WTO chairs, and the United States then uh, decided to block uh, any decision on uh, this issue. Uh, So we now have uh, an impasse in the uh, decision about the Director General of the WTO. It's not uh, unexpected because (laughs) we we know uh, we have uh, experience of the Trump administration. It is the hallmark of the Trump administration and its behavior in the GATT, um, uh, in the WTO during the past few years. Um, you know, uh, one, of course, 
uh, major um, uh, example of this is their uh, veto of the um, appellate body members, uh, which again they're very they're very much alone in that uh, decision because the European Union and all other developed countries are opposed to the United States behavior mm-hmm. in their vetoing their continued vetoing of appellate body members uh, of the you know in the dispute settlement system and again <laughs> on this issue of the DG, uh, there is no support for the U.S. Uh, veto, uh, the effective veto that it currently has uh, over this decision. So I have no doubt that um, um, you know common sense will prevail, and it's almost certain now that Biden will win the election from the news reports, um, and um, uh, the new administration as they come in. Um, I'm absolutely certain will be much more sensible because we have a candidate here who has the competence, the capability, the maturity, uh, political maturity to manage an important institution like the WTO and has overwhelming support by the members of the WTO. There's no doubt I have that the Biden administration. Um, I think I think um, power, he's covered a, a lot of the ground uh, that um, the we initially wanted to to okay. touch, and and the points that um, you raised certainly about the the race for the DG are important because I know I a lot of probably a lot of our listeners um, and the broader audience also um, have questions around that. Um, but I think in 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 trying to draw this to a close. Um, and, and seeing that you've touched on a lot of the the, the key issues, I think now, um, given given this moment that we are in, um, are you are you trying to 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 maybe plan for a follow up book uh, in for w, uh, WTO 2.0? Um, if if you're looking at it from that very positive scenario, um, should we expect a follow up book from you? Well, actually, you know, <laughs> I feel a little bit like I have been distracted by the WTO because since I returned from Geneva, my focus has really been at uh, what's going on at home and uh, on our continent in Africa, which is far more exciting, really, <laughs> than the WTO. The, um, the process of building our own regional integration process is just amazing. Uh, to me because and fascinating because of the tremendous political momentum we have seen in the last few years um, in the negotiations uh, and uh, the successful conclusion of the agreement um, to create an African continental free trade agreement and the appointment of the new Secretary General, Wamkele Mene, who I'm pleased to say was my deputy when I was ambassador in Geneva he was uh, my deputy and a, a, a fabulous person uh, and a very accomplished, has two master's degrees, uh, has a lot of experience uh, that he built up uh, during the five years that he was with me in Geneva. Um, and uh, I have no doubt he will um, lead the uh, uh, African continental free trade area 
in a uh, wise and um, very robust uh, manner. Uh, and I'm very, very um, pleased to see that um, the, the process has, has continued, notwithstanding the uh, pandemic, which has slowed us down. Um, the negotiations are proceeding, and a summit is planned for December of uh, uh, presidents or for the, uh, to um, take advance the process of uh, implementing the African Continental Free Trade Agreement. Uh, so yes, I'm working on the AFCFTA. I'm doing a lot of research on this question. We've been running a few oh, webinars on that's, it. That's um, interesting, and, and I'm sure we'll definitely be keeping governance. our um, eyes peeled for that. And just something that you've said concerning African the Continental, Continental Free Trade Day has just um, sort of sparked another question for me. Um, and and I know we need to to put to draw this to a close. But I'd be very interested in. Um, hearing your perspectives, particularly because you, you're also teaching um, upcoming international trade uh, negotiators, and I think this is also important. So we we know the the the, the turn or the 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 fact that a lot of countries have t have resorted to a variety of negotiation approaches, so both inside and outside the WTO available to them. And this this has consisted of the, the multilateral negotiations, the bilateral and the regional negotiations, and, and the plurilateral uh, negotiations. So the, there's, a, there's also, in the, in the context of this, a very long-standing debate as to whether bilateral and regional agreements are building blocks or are they stumbling blocks for the multilateral trading system. And there's the, the argument that uh, that this could lead to um, what has been labeled the spaghetti bowl effect. And there's also concerns around trade diversion. So do, to what extent do these various um, negotiation approaches uh, do you see do you see them posing a challenge to the future of the WTO? Um, is there a way out of the, the this polarizing debate around building blocks versus stumbling blocks? Yes, there are certainly dangers in, um, you know, uh, complexity of uh, bilateral arrangements, uh, especially when you have bilateral arrangements which seek to um, go beyond uh, multilateral agreements and uh, impose uh, more burdens on developing countries and uh, create rules which are very different from the multilateral rules. But uh, in my experience, there is a strong uh, basis for complementarity between multilateral rules and regional rulemaking. So I, for example, uh, I teach a course um, in a course on international trade law at the University of Cape Town in the law faculty. And I also teach in a course on regional law and regional integration in Africa. And uh, if you look at the, um, the agreement uh, that have, the agreements that have been reached so far in the African Continental Free Trade Agreement, the Protocol on Trade in Goods, the Protocol on Trade in Services, and the third big agreement is the, the 
um, protocol on dispute settlement in the African Continental Free Trade Agreement, you'll see that they are almost uh, similar to the language and the, the principles uh, of the, uh, uh, that are already enshrined in the, in the, in the WTO. Uh, so what we are building here at the regional level in Africa is a sort of a mini WTO. And it is, you know, almost similar to what they did in the European Union. You know, what they did in Europe is also built rules, regional rules. And at the outset in Europe, when they began the process of regional integration, that was based on the principle of solidarity. That was the, the founding fathers of the European Union, Jean Monnet, Robert Schuman, and others, who led the process you know, wanted to create solidarity between countries that were fighting with each other. You'll remember before the Second World War, these European countries were at loggerheads and often at conflict. And, you know, uh, so the purpose of the integration at the regional level is to move away from conflict, to create cooperation, to create a basis for greater economic and social integration, this is what we want to do in Africa. So the Pan-African leaders like Kwame Nkrumah and then leaders like, uh, uh, you know, Dr. Adedeji Adebayo, uh, who came up with the uh, Abuja Treaty, they, they all have been thinking about, and Nelson Mandela, thinking about how can we encourage cooperation and greater integration so that we can benefit from building a, a bigger market, sharing knowledge and expertise between ourselves, and raising the level of development of all our people in this region. So if we think about the global system and the regional system as complementing each other, and the regional system creating a basis for um, uh, global rules, so you experiment, you build concepts, you implement them, and you learn the lessons. And then you also help to build, through that experience, global rules. This is what China is doing in the Belt and Road Initiative in Southeast Asia. That's what it started doing as well, building principles and values, regional arrangements that it's in its own vision and its own um, perspective of uh, multilateralism it's trying to do in the region. So it's a great opportunity for us in Africa to use our agency as Africans to create our own regional arrangements through using our own principles of Ubuntu, solidarity, and thereby contributing to the building of multilateralism. If we see multilateralism and regionalism like this, then we see it as complementary. The one helping to build the other and the other, the multilateral helping to reinforce and strengthen the regional. Uh, and, and, and being based on the same principles of solidarity and um, uh, social justice. It's, it's fascinating that you talk about China uh, in that way, Faisal, because you know, listening to China now around the global health diplomacy um, approach 
and in particular going back to the language of principles, values. Um, recently, I was listening to a few of these webinars where Chinese uh, think tank uh, academics and, and, and experts were talking about the five principles of peaceful coexistence. Um, and, and they seem to be reinforcing it a lot as part of a normalization of um, language in their global diplomacy, even at the, w, the, uh, the WHO, the UN, and so forth. And I think it's very important that you raise that and, and how that becomes part of the norm in negotiating strategy, uh, which is something that I think we, we, we definitely need to explore more. But I can't help to ask this question, and that is, are we looking to still do this within a model of internet of of, of a multilateral system uh, where the the dynamics of that model uh, with people like with the, like like Joseph Stiglitz and um, 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 Thomas Piketty as well as um, uh, uh, others have been talking about the the kind of inherent crises of the model. And so when you talk about this agency and you talk about these values, principles, norms of Ubuntu and Pan-Africanism, etc., how much of that has to also kind of self-correct, if that's the right word to use, um, with regard to this multilateralism that we want to create, that, that you speak of in Africa, in terms of the, the, the regional integration model, et cetera, because very often the, 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 the question that becomes interesting within the space is, are we just trying to borrow too much from a European experience of EU integration, or should we be thinking about uh, looking at maybe the ASEAN model of how those values, principles, et cetera, came to be, and you know, looking at some of the, the, the questions around this, this this crisis of this liberal international model that we talk about in the in both a kind of global trading regime but also in the international political economy yeah it's interesting you say that because i see when i look at the history of the world you know from the league of nations to the united nations and the bretton woods system i mean what you see is a tension between the ideals of the forefathers, uh, you know, from Woodrow Wilson uh, to the, uh, you know, United Nations Charter. And of course, you know, the reason I mentioned the forefathers of the European Union is because when you look at their writings, they have a, a number of ideals and the Pan-African leaders in Africa some the Chinese you raise the ideals, uh, the values and ideals that they're talking about. Um, these are the ideals and values that countries, you know, uh, in their more sober state, um, when they reflect on their own essence um, as a society, this is what they talk about. The practice, the practice of multilateralism, has been one where the dominant countries have asserted their interests. And so you have a shift from idealism to interest-driven, and in the case of the WTO, mercantilism, a drive to assert your national interests over and above the, you know, the, the interests and the values of the, the global 
system as a whole. And I think that's the tension we need to resolve. We need to get back to the values that combine all of us as peoples in the world. And yes, so in this current tension in the WTO, the so-called, I mean, it's really the underlying basis for that is, you know, in the U.S.-China war, the so-called U.S.-China war. What it is, it's about a dominant power, the United States, trying to pressurize um, China, which is its competitor, to converge to one view of the world, to one model of uh, the world, which is a, a perspective of the United States, what somebody called the Convergence Club, uh, where the GATT you know, embodied the views and interests of the United States and its model of what is the correct, the right type of, um, you know, uh, regulations and rules that should govern an economy and a society. Um, its own model of globalization and, and, and capitalism. Whereas now we have a multiplicity of models that have emerged in the world. And China is a different model of, of, uh, of um, a society, an economy, a way of uh, advancing its industrialization and its uh, growth path um, and uh, raising the wealth of its people. And the WTO has to recognize differences and it has to live with it. It has to find a way to ensure that um, the system is accommodative of different parts to development. This is what some of the um, thinkers, uh, you know, intellectuals, academics are saying. So there was a working group established, a joint working group, by the way, between leading thinkers like Joseph Stiglitz and Danny Roderick and other Chinese thinkers um, to, you know, offer their advice. And this is what they said. We need... Um, a system which uh, recognizes divergence, recognizes diversity of perspectives on paths to development and not have one perspective driving the others out. So if you adopt that, then you won't have this, you know, yellow peril, this fear of China dominating other countries with its own values and vice versa, you know, of us you know, fearing the dominance of U.S. or Western or, you know, model of, um, of, uh, of government and politics and perspectives of the world. So we, we need to respect diversity because there are different parts and we, we need to find a way to live to each other and, co and coexist. And this is the challenge of multilateralism today. It's not easy, mm -hmm. but it is only necessary. It is the only path that... Uh, thank you so much, Professor, uh, uh, for your very, very um, um, engaging yeah, discussion, the kind forever. of insights I mean, and the food for thought that you've left, not only for us, uh, but for our audience, um, is deeply, deeply appreciated. And you've raised very many, not just the substantive issues, but you've raised also very key issues that touch directly on um, the, the deeply 
um, theoretical concepts that we we used to navigate the IR world, questions about international society, questions about regionalism being a complementary layer to to um, global governance, etc. So a really, really a vast array of issues uh, to ponder. So thank you very much for joining us. Thank you also to um, our audience for, for tuning in and, and uh, listening on this episode, particularly on the WTO and the, and the multilateral trading system. And we look forward to um, continuing the conversation at a later time when we can perhaps come back and reflect on your next book. Thank you um, once more. And I, I certainly urge the, the listeners to also share this and um, let's let's carry and engage further on this conversation. Thank you. Thanks to you, uh, Faith, and to Sanusha for this opportunity to talk about my book. And uh, I hope uh, very much that uh, perhaps in a year we'll talk about another book. Thank you so much. <laughs> We're looking forward to it, Faisal. And also to just let listeners know that your book is available on the South Centre website. Um, so, yeah, yes. go ahead and download it and expand on everything that Faisal has been talking about here. You'll get more more value in, in the in the in the issues he raises. So thanks again, Faisal, and yeah, good luck with the next book and we're looking forward to it. Thank you so much. Have a lovely day. Cheers.